Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the stories shaping the world's most interesting region. I'm Andrew People. Well, it's been a dramatic few days in Southeast Asian nation Myanmar, or Burma. The country's military has seized power again and arrested several of the country's civilian leaders, including national figurehead Aung San Suu Kyi. Her party, the National League for Democracy, had won a convincing victory in elections last November. Well, for those who used to live under Myanmar's decades-long military dictatorship, this is a hugely concerning turn of events. Of course, Myanmar's civilian government, including Ms. Suu Kyi herself, had come under intense criticism from overseas in recent years, owing to the alleged genocide of the Rohingya minority in the country's northwest. Well, the current situation is obviously quite fluid, but we wanted to bring you an analysis of these events and their background. And joining us to do so, we're pleased to have Champa Patel, head of the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House, and Tinta Sui, the BBC's former Burmese editor, and now an independent analyst based in London. Thanks so much for joining us, both of you. And maybe if I can turn to Sui first. Let's start with the immediate cause of this crisis. Why has the military in Myanmar taken this step at this moment? The military, what they're saying is that the takeover was upholding the constitution. But one can assume the military's decision to seize power from the elected government. I think it's based on two factors. One is the result of the November election, and the other one is personal ambition of the commander-in-chief, General Myanmar, who is the coup leader now. What exactly happened is Aung San Suu Kyi's NLT party, National League for Democracy Party, won all the parliamentary seats contested in the election. Suddenly, the military realized that the constitution that drafted by the military, which has enshrined their political power, the military political power, could be taken away from them. Because Aung San Suu Kyi, with the majority in the parliament, she is going to try and change that constitution to make it more democratic. That is something the military cannot accept. And another factor is, as I said, the commander-in-chief's personal ambition. He has never denied that he would like to serve in a different role for the country. Effectively, what he's saying is his ambition to become president of the country. And that could be done if the military-backed proxy party won enough seat, because 25% of the seat is reserved for the army. So with the backing from the proxy party, he could easily become president. That was his dream, but that dream was shattered. So what else he could do? Just take over the country. How united do you think the other military leaders are behind him then? I mean, is this a move that all of the military are getting behind, do you think? You know, it's very interesting. When there was the rumours about a coup attempt, we were trying to figure out, is it just rumours or is it really the military is thinking to take over power again? So we tried to contact the NLT legislators. They were very, quite interesting. They were very relaxed about it. And what they said is, no, it's not going to happen because the deputy commander-in-chief has a very warm relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi. And we know that the relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi or NLD and the army is never an easy one. But uh, the deputy commander-in-chief seems to be very friendly with Aung San Suu Kyi. 
And a lot of people in the NLG party, they think that Deputy Commander-in-Chief would not support General Myung Nain if he decided to take over the country. But, uh, but, but it's all wrong now, you know. So when you talk about unity behind General Myung Nain, I would say the army is solidly behind him. Champa, from your perspective, there's obviously this personal element to it, but to what extent do you see what's been happening this rising tension between the military and the NLD, Aung San Suu Kyi's party. To what extent has that been a consequence of the fundamental issues with the constitutional settlement that Myanmar made in the last decade? As Sui mentioned already, you know, the democratic transition was never fully democratic in the sense that the military baked in a system where they would have power, 25% of seats which meant that they would always have an influential role to play in what happened in the country. But the scale of the defeat that they witnessed in November really brought into question how long they could maintain that, because now Aung San Suu Kyi had the electoral seats needed in order to pass reform. So I think that deep insecurity, along with the personal ambitions of General Minong Lang, have played a role in orchestrating the situation that we see now. The military had for some time complained about election fraud following the elections in November, often in language that seemed to reflect, in a way, what Donald Trump was saying about the US election. Is there any evidence that that sort of fraud did take place? I mean, one of the arguments that the military uses to justify the coup is that there has been widespread electoral fraud, that they raised this with the election commission and no action was taken. And the concern is, or what they allege is that voter lists contained inconsistencies and errors. Independent observers to the election have agreed that there may have been some errors in the voter rolls, but there really is no evidence that people actually committed electoral fraud. None of that has actually been presented by the military. The Electoral Commission has pushed back, saying there's no evidence to support the army's claims. There are also foreign electoral observers, such as the Carter Centre, which had more than 40 observers visiting polling stations on the election day itself, who have also said the voting had taken place without major irregularities. So it seems that this narrative is being perpetuated to justify the coup, but there's very little evidence to support that. I see. Sway, from your understanding, what's been the reaction so far from ordinary people in Myanmar? Has there been any unrest or has the military been able to keep that under wraps? What's the situation on the ground as far as you're hearing? The people, almost everyone I've spoken to, they're very upset. They're very angry. They're very worried about their future. They were not expecting this to happen. And they know that under the military rule, people will be allowed only limited freedom. Ever since we gained independence in 1948, you know, there was a brief period of democratic parliamentary democracy. But after that, until 2010, it was a continuous military regime running the country. And what they have seen is the lack of investment and the lack of investment in human resources. They have seen this, the way the NLD government, Aung San Suu Kyi government run and the way the military run the country is so different. The first thing what happened is freedom of expression is now being restricted. We are already seeing the MPT, the state-owned telecom operator, it has blocked Facebook as well as Messenger, Instagram, and WhatsApp on its network. 
So Facebook is a critical tool for Burmese to share information. And also the coup, it threatens to roll back the very moderate gains made in freedom of speech and assembly. So the coup leader has announced a state of emergency will last a year. And there is no reason to assume that this one-year period will not be renewed year upon year, and people are fully aware of it. So what are they trying to do? Aung San Suu Kyi, she knew that she was going to be detained, so she left a note. And in the note said, try and show your disapproval to the military, what they have done to the country, in a peaceful way. You know, so they have started civil disobedience. Like they bang pots and bands at night at 8 o'clock and cars honk. It's happening everywhere. The civil disobedience have gained a lot of momentum. A lot of university teachers, school teachers, health workers, etc. They are now staging protests. It does take the military aback. They were surprised that the people were showing their disapproval by peacefully protesting, but they are very, very unhappy about the way the country is moving. So you said, Sway, that the the military has talked about imposing a state of emergency for a year and then holding the elections again. I mean, Champa, do you think that's realistic yourself? Can there even be a resumption of democratic rule after this? Or will trust between the military and the civil politicians have totally disappeared now? I think given that the basis on which the military has undertaken this coup is about consolidating and deepening their power, it's very hard to imagine then that they will look after a process or put a process in place through which there can be a transition back to democratic power. Because if they're not going to respect the outcomes of the recent election, which they lost, and they lost on a large scale, what's to say that they will respect whatever comes next? But I think the intention of doing this is to engineer a process where they can consolidate their own power. As we mentioned already, the scale of the success of NLD meant that they could enact reforms that would limit the military's power further. Engineering this process gives them a space in which they can consolidate and deepen their power so that any election that follows doesn't undermine them in any way. I think there's a risk here because with all the NLD leaders under arrest, To what degree are they going to be able to participate in elections? Can we really say they will be free or fair? What parameters are going to be put in place? Or will they choose to boycott them? Because there is no evidence of electoral fraud. So why would you go through election cycle again? So I think it leaves a lot of questions open as to what would this process be? Will people participate in it? But really, is it just about consolidating the military's power? And in that respect, it's very difficult to have trust in the process. Yeah, it's difficult to see a sort of exit strategy here. What do you think, Champa, staying with you, what do you think the economic implications are going to be? I mean, maybe money hadn't quite flooded into Myanmar over the last few years in the way that people may have hoped, but still a large amount of money has flowed into the country following its turn towards democracy or what people thought was a turn towards democracy. What do you think is going to be the response of business leaders inside and outside of Myanmar? The coup is going to have a devastating impact on its economy. Oxford Economics has estimated that the coup could likely cut growth this year by half, from 4.1% to 2%. It will have a major impact on the poor people of Myanmar. You know, the threat of international sanctions, the US has threatened more sanctions, could leave foreign investors looking elsewhere. 
Today, we heard the news that Kirin Beer Company has pulled out of its joint venture with Myanmar. So we're likely to see other businesses taking similar action. And there are many Western businesses like Samsonite, H&M and Bass Pro who have suppliers in Myanmar. So I think depending on what happens, it could have a strong impact on the economy. But I would say this, it will have an impact on the economy in one way, but this may be mitigated if India, Japan and China help make up for lost business. So I think on the one hand, it could hit the economy. On the other hand, there will still be countries who are willing to work with the military regime. That's interesting. I mean, we tend to often look at Myanmar through the lens of the US-China geostrategic rivalry. With that in mind, Sway, what do you think the US response is going to be? And what kind of influence can it really exert on this situation? And secondly, really, has the Rohingya crisis of the recent years, how has that changed the calculus here, do you think? You know, the sanctions, US is already considering sanctions against Myanmar, but a lot of people said businesses might turn to China instead. Then I just want to add that China is very careful not to upset either the military nor Aung San Suu Kyi. It is a very uncomfortable situation for China. And uh, there are a lot of uh, resentment to Chinese investment in Burma. So it will be interesting to see how this is going to pan out. Because according to Chinese state media, they didn't say it was military coup. The state media described what happened in Burma as just a cabinet reshuffle. So that explains, you know, how China feels about Burma. Uh, going back to your question about U.S.-China geostrategic rivalry, Joe Biden has already said they're going to reinforce sanctions on Myanmar, but his administration is going to launch high-level internal discussions. This is quite unusual. High-level internal discussion aim at crafting a whole government response and plan to consult closely with Congress. Champa, what's your take on the geopolitics here? I mean, people say on the face of it that the military leaders will be closer to Beijing, but is it that simple? I mean, Aung San Suu Kyi herself had been getting closer to Xi Jinping in the last year or so, especially as she became more unpopular in the West. Yeah, there's a lot of analysis that shows the limited impact the sanctions had under the previous military regime. So the question is, if the US wants to introduce further sweeping sanctions to the ones already in place, what kind of deterrent effect will that really have? Myanmar's currency isn't heavily dependent on US dollars, so it's different to the sanctions regime that was forced on Iran that meant that it was always going to be vulnerable to sanctions. Myanmar is not as dependent on the dollar to grow its economy. So the country has a thriving border trade with neighboring countries. Some of it is the informal economy. So arguably, there will be others that fill that gap. So this is not to say sanctions shouldn't be taken forward. But the question of how much they can actually move the needle in terms of a peaceful resolution of the issues, I think is still questionable. In terms of China's role, I think in a way, you know, the military were cautious of China. They still are cautious of China. Part of the reason they opened up the country in the first place is because they didn't want to be economically and politically dependent on China. And yet we have a situation now where if sanctions are imposed and the country faces economic hardship, it may force the military to once again look to China for economic and political support. So I think there are lots of moving pieces here that we need to really see how they may fall out. 
What other countries do you think are going to be important players in the near-term future for Myanmar? What I'm struck by is that there's very little discussion of Japan. Japan is an important economic partner of Myanmar's. But more importantly, it's been a friend to both the military and Aung San Suu Kyi for decades. So if there's one party that commands the trust of both sides of this equation, it's Japan. Japan is also a US ally. It's a UK ally. So it's interesting to me that we're talking about what's China going to do, what's the US going to do. But there's very little analysis of what Japan could do. So I think this shows how the geopolitical context is trumping good policy in the sense that people are focusing on this rivalry between these two superpowers and forgetting about what's best for the people of Myanmar itself. Yeah, and Japan has been a huge investor in Myanmar in recent years, even bigger than China, I think. In some sectors, but I think it's more the political support that it also gives the country that's often overlooked. It was the first country to support Myanmar in its International Court of Justice case. You know, the Japanese ambassador to Myanmar has said that his government firmly believes that no genocide was committed in the country and hopes that the International Court of Justice would not issue a ruling for provisional measures against Myanmar. So it also gives it political cover. And I think given that, you know, Japan is linked in with Western allies, more could be done through looking at the role of Japan. Many will also focus on India's reaction. And I think we have to be careful that we don't forget about Bangladesh, because Bangladesh is the country that in some ways is most impacted. You know, it's still hosting up to a million Rohingya. There's been no movement made in terms of resolving the Rohingya crisis. So I think we mustn't forget how, you know, the role of Bangladesh when considering what could be done and how it should be taken forward. Can I add something to what Shampa just answered? Of course. It's about Asia investment. Singapore was the largest foreign investor in Burma last year, accounting for 34% of overall approved investment. And the second one is Hong Kong. However, fierce competition exists between the Asian economic giants, mainly Japan and China, over Myanmar. Japan has been offering Myanmar assistance to distant Myanmar government from Beijing. So as things stand now, Japan is the only potential rival to China in terms of its influence on Myanmar. Japan has given massive amount of aid to Myanmar. They have given 280 million assistance to Aung San Suu Kyi's government for the economic recovery program. So what is interesting is, as recent as 10th of November, the Japanese government sent a special envoy to Myanmar. And the purpose of the trip is for national reconciliation, I suspect primarily between Aung San Suu Kyi government and the military. So the person who they nominated to represent the Japanese government is chairman of Nippon Foundation, Mr. Sasakawa. And Mr. Sasakawa met with Aung San Suu Kyi as well as the coup leader, Senior General Myanghai. During that meeting, the coup leader and Mr. Sasakawa, this is what we heard, they discussed extensively about their views on Rakhine situation. And soon after the meeting, the military declared a ceasefire in that region and also they have extended their wish to uh, communicate with Arakani's army, which is Rakhine army, representing the Rakhine people in the region. 
Previously, Arakan army was regarded as terrorists by the military. So that was an interesting development. Another interesting thing about Japan is previously, Japan is against a sanction on Burma. They have publicly declared that sanctions would just make the situation worse. So now if the Western governments are thinking of imposing sanction on Burma, how Japan is going to clear it out, we don't know. We have to wait and see. But from previous experience, Japan is not willing to support sanction. They responded by calling for the release of Aung San Suu Kyi and members of a civilian government, and also they asked to restore democracy. However, as far as the geopolitical interest is concerned, it seems like Japan will still support the military government by means of humanitarian assistance. What are you looking out for now? What do you see as the next steps here? And what are you particularly concerned about? There'll be more arrests and there'll be more pressure on the young activists. But the election is going to be very interesting because they know that they need to have legitimacy. And the only way they could do it is by holding elections. So they're going to hold elections, you know, once they are in control and they are confident that a lot of NLT leaders are either disqualified or under house arrest or in detention. Then the election will start. As Champa said, you know, the people may boycott the election, but it doesn't matter. They did it in 2010 and they declared that they won the election and they ruled the country. So that is going to happen. But what is going to be interesting is they are now watching Thailand closely. The way Thai military is running the country is something that they may try to copy it. It has a lot of control over the population, but at the same time, it allows certain degree of freedom. So they might use that model, but it's very interesting to see how they're going to govern the country. Another thing is they have seen how Aung San Suu Kyi and NLD party govern the country by investing heavily on people, education sector, in health sector. They have introduced sustainable development programs into many areas. Also, they have improved the infrastructure. So the military could copy that uh, model as well, because today they said they're going to carry on with COVID vaccination, and they have started this today. And they're using AstraZeneca under license in India rather than Chinese vaccines. So there are a lot of diplomacy and also General Miao Nain has invited the people from Chamber of Commerce to his house in Nepidor. I heard that he gave a very grand dinner to them and he said he's going to carry out all the projects, he's going to work together with them, he's going to encourage foreign investment. So it will be quite interesting to see what kind of Burma we are going to see in the future. It will be military run, but a certain degree of freedom, limited, but degree of freedom, not like the previous military regimes, and with some political parties who are against the NLD, not necessarily support the military, they will be incorporated into the future government. That's how I picture Burma. Well, thank you both of you for those insights, and thank you for coming to speak to us at such short notice. It's obviously a very unsettled situation and we'll be keeping our eyes on it very firmly here at Asia Matters. 
Thank you to our producer, Rebecca Bailey, for this episode and to Alexander Lestrange for doing the music. You can find out more at www.asiamatterspod.com and follow us on Twitter at Asia Matters Pod. Tune in for more analysis and insights into the biggest stories in Asia. Thank you for joining us today and goodbye.